listening to the Learning to Believe Again podcast with your host, Brittany Bexton. Where do you begin when you're learning to believe again? Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I have Shannon Davis on with me this week, and we are going to be talking about the subject of abuse and what the Bible says about it, what God says about it, and how to deal with that even in a church setting or how people should be dealing with it in a church setting. Shannon has an awesome ministry and does awesome work with people healing trauma. She runs something called a trauma-informed way where she helps people heal somatically and process trauma out of their bodies so that they can actually start processing mental trauma. She is awesome. And we actually do a live weekly on TikTok right now, just discussing domestic abuse, trauma, and healing from it. But I thought it would be nice to do an episode specifically about abuse and what the Bible says about it, because there's so much misconception around that. And it is so common in situations of domestic abuse for spiritual abuse to be part of that or become part of that. And we would like to put a stop to that. So welcome, Shannon. Hi, Brittany. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Now, Shannon, you're going to share out of a couple of books today, right? Yes, I am. I want to uh, reference a few books. I'm mostly going to speak from a few quotes from Suffering and The Heart of God by Diane Langberg. But if you want to find out more information for yourself, please read The Body Keeps the Score. And this is going to come from a scientific medical statistics, documented research and proof of what's happening with the suffering in the heart of God in the church, and also with what happens to the body when it experiences trauma without the support that it needs. Now that's the body keeps the score. And that will really show you that even if you mentally tell yourself, I'm fine, your body says, no, I'm not. And it will have some sort of reaction to that trauma, regardless of how strong you are mentally, which most of us are very strong mentally, but it starts to break. And that's what's, that is what mental health issues are. It doesn't make you less of a person. It means your body is literally screaming at you to deal with what happened to you so that you can move forward and think with clarity and strategically and use that executive brain function that we want to be um, utilizing instead of living in fight or flight. And a lot of us live in that. A lot of us live in a constant amount of stress that we don't even know what relaxation is. So yeah, those will be the two books. Yes. I have heard so many good things about that book and I have heard references to it a million times. Okay. A million times might be a slight exaggeration, but I actually have yet to read it myself thus far, but I can attest that trauma does get in your body. You know, your mind might lie to you. You can convince yourself of a lot of things, but your body will not lie. If you're feeling anxious and stressed out all the time, if you feel on edge or you start feeling sick a lot or a lot of people develop stomach issues, that kind of a thing, your body is speaking to you. It is telling you something and it's saying, pay attention. Something's not right here. So thank you. Thank you yes. for sharing and so, that. You know, let's just define abuse uh, very was, quickly because, oh, you are. Okay. 
No, I was just going to say the same exact thing. So we're on the same page. (laughs) Okay, awesome. So defining abuse is just understanding different kinds of domestic abuse. And the definition of abuse, it comes from an English word or Latin word called abutor, which means to use wrongly. Other um, definitions include to insult, to consume, to violate, to defile, to tread underfoot slowly or tarnish. Abuse occurs whenever one person uses another person for wrong purposes. So that is what abuse is. Anytime someone uses another as a punching bag, a depository for rage, a thing to be controlled or used for their own gratification, abuse has occurred. Anytime words are used that demean, this is emotional abuse, psychological abuse, mental abuse. It doesn't have to be physical abuse or stealing. Lying is abuse. So anyone that insults you, embarrasses you, humiliates you, threatens you, intimidates you, calls you a name, abuse has occurred. So that, so just so we're all clear, this whole episode and the, the, um, ongoing conversation we have about this, this is what we're going to use to define abuse. And again, we are using uh, Diane Langberg's book for the definitions for um, some of the topic conversations. And I'll let you guys know specifically when I read a quote. Yes. Yes. And I want to reiterate what Shannon said. Abuse is not just physical. Abuse can be emotional and psychological abuse also. That is just as dangerous And I'm just going to add a little bit to that and say all abuse is about power and control. So whether it's physical, whether it is emotional, whether it is psychological, it is fueled by power and control when one person wants power or control over another. And I'm only saying that because I feel like that's a pretty simple way to look at it and recognize abuse in a more broad spectrum when those things are going on. And we might define a little bit of the terms and some of the things that happen just in psychological abuse as well. I think it's obvious when abuse is going on and it's physical. You know, we know someone's not supposed to hit us. We know someone's not supposed to break a bone on us or, you know, punch walls in front of us and whatnot. But it can be harder to recognize the psychological aspects. But first, I'm just going to dive into some of the Bible verses about abuse and what God says. So Colossians 3.19, it says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So, you know, that's pretty clear. Do not be harsh with them. Obviously, God does not condone abuse. Harshness can be mental, emotional abuse. It doesn't just have to be physical. 1 Corinthians 7.15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So what this is speaking about specifically relates to divorce, which I'll get into a little bit more after this. But they're stating that if you have married an unbeliever, it is safe to do this. It's fine to separate if they have separated from you. Now, here's the thing. Someone that says they believe in God and are a Christian, but they are consistently abusing their wife, their children, their brothers, their sisters, their friends, whatever it is, they're not really walking with Jesus because that's not what Jesus represents. That is not what Christianity represents, and that is not what God wants. So whether or not they say they believe, 
their behavior says that they don't. And separating doesn't just mean physically separating. It can mean an emotional separation also. Because if someone is abusing you and causing a separation emotionally, there is a separateness there. It is not what the covenant of God, the covenant of marriage is supposed to look like. And as it says here, the brother or sister is not enslaved. That means whoever is in that situation or that marriage is not enslaved to it. They are released. They are allowed biblically to go. God has called you to peace. Proverbs 22:10 says, drive out a scoffer and strife will go out and quarreling and abuse will cease. So we're not supposed to be around people that are scoffing and causing strife and stirring it up. In Psalm 11:5, I almost said 11:15. In Psalm 11:5, it says, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. It's pretty clear. Violence can be physical or emotional, but God hates the one who loves violence. Someone who is being abusive is loving violence. They are assuming power and control over another person, whether mentally and emotionally or physically. They are loving it. They are enjoying it. They know what they are doing. God hates that. It actually says God hates them, but it's their behavior that he hates. If repentance happens, he will forgive, but that has to be true repentance and turning away from the wrongdoing. I was going to say, just to add to the overall, what Brittany's saying about these scriptures is that we're to be watching people's fruit. If you think of marketing, they present a product to you and say, this can do all these things. And that, that thing cannot do all those things, but they can say whatever they want because they're just trying to sell you a product. The people around you can tell you whatever you want to hear because they're very good at manipulating toxic people manipulate. And the two psychological aspects Brittany was talking about is coercion and gaslighting. And we will talk about that. Yes. But people allow you to see what they want you to see. You have to learn to discern their fruit. All these verses are about discerning fruit. People can say whatever they want to say, but doesn't make it true. And so that's just a overall way to look at a situation that's helped me because I don't like sitting here thinking I'm judging everybody, but I am measuring them against the fruit of God. It's completely different in Hebrew to judge means to measure. So we've all been judged by God. He's chosen us. He's loved us. He loves us. And so when we measure another believer, we're measuring it against God. And we're not measuring them as a human because he's already deemed them worthy, but their behavior is no longer their behavior or their words and their behavior are two different things unless they're the same, unless their behavior lines up with their words. And then we have found a coherent person, one that's a believer and walks with the fruit and we can go forward with that, but it's not about judging them in a way that the world has taught us. It's measurement. Are they peaceful? Do they bear love? Are they faithful? Do they have self-control? And if they don't, we don't have to partner with that because that's just an unsafe behavior that we're not partnering with, not a person that we're judging. So anyways, yeah, sorry, I just wanted to jump in with that. Yes, yes, we can judge the behavior, but we don't get to judge a person and whether or not they're condemned. Only God does that, right? And God doesn't want anybody to be condemned. 
but God will also protect his children and will do whatever it takes to do that. So, but we do not judge people. We do judge fruit. We do judge fruit. We do judge actions. And we can recognize that an action is not okay and needs to be dealt with. Yes. And it just reading through Timothy one and two, you will see the standard set for abusive people in the church and in our fellowship. So have a look at first and second Timothy, but one of the verses, first Timothy six twenty says, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Okay, when someone says that they are so amazing or even other people say they're so amazing because that's what they presented to the world and you've seen them behind doors abusing children, animals or yourself, that is a contradiction. So anything that they say is babble. You don't want to listen to double-sided man. And so anyways, Brittany, I just wanted to agree with you on those scriptures and say how I've done it. Cause it's, it's not easy to figure it out because everyone, even if the whole world is agreeing with somebody, doesn't mean you don't know that it they're not right. So what do you do in those situations? You trust yourself and you set boundaries. Absolutely. Boundaries are a huge deal. Boundaries are one of the most important things that we can have in place as people, as believers, all of it. Boundaries aren't just the things that keep out the bad. They're also the things that healthily let in the good. And healthy boundaries are actually a healthy part of every healthy relationship. Boundaries make for healthy relationships. Without them, we get into messes. So yes, boundaries are a huge deal. And they're for the person that's making the boundary. So if I'm making a boundary and saying, if you continue to yell at me, I will no longer talk to you. That's not about about controlling that person. That person can still yell at me, but I'm going to keep myself safe and not talk to them and remove myself. So the boundary is never to control the other person or manipulate them to try to do something differently because the people are who they are. But we get to decide as um, healthy people thinking with our rational brain, not in fight or flight, but from rest and digest, um, that we get to decide to say, no, we're not going to tolerate abuse anymore. We no longer tolerate disrespect. And yeah. Yeah. And it's really important when you do set boundaries that you stick to it, that there's a very specific consequence and you stick to it because you're worth it. Don't allow someone to walk over your boundaries Because when they do, you're just inviting them to continue to walk over your boundaries. And where one thing might seem like not a big deal that they've crossed, if someone's willing to cross a boundary in a little area, you should really, really watch. Just as we talked about inspecting fruit, it's important to really be aware from that moment. They cross this boundary. What other boundaries are they willing to cross? Because When you give in and you allow someone to consistently cross boundaries, even things that are smaller things, it adds up and it becomes a very unhealthy relationship over time. And even if you're not dealing with a toxic person, but you're not setting boundaries for yourself, you can end up breeding resentment in yourself in a healthy situation if you're not setting the boundaries that you need. Because someone else, if you're not telling them what's okay, won't know. Yes. And what Brittany said at the beginning was very true. You can't set a consequence that you're not prepared to back up. So when you say, I will leave if you yell at me, you have to leave. 
You have to make plans to keep yourself safe. You have to wait and don't set big boundaries like that until you can actually follow through. Set little boundaries, walk to the room. But if you're in violence right now, a side note is that any type of behavior like this will aggravate the abuser. And so abuse is different than a normal disrespectful person, which not disrespect is not normal, but there is a difference between someone being disrespectful. And you can say, if you talk to me like that, not I'm going to leave the room and they won't hurt you when you try to do that. And an abuser will try to still get a reaction out of you and keep going. So when you make a boundary in an abusive situation, please make sure you can back it up. I always start with a safety plan for everyone just to assess where you are at. If you are safe to leave, if you are safe to set verbal boundaries, or if you just need to be status quo until you leave without warning. Yep. There's a lot of ways to set yourself up to be successful when you escape. You don't have to go back seven times. You can prepare ahead of time, become trauma informed, set up your safety plan and go forward and never look back again because you you make a mental preparation for a long time. The very first thing you want to do is emotionally detach. Then you want to start stashing finances and find safe people, probably going outside of your circle, depending on how close knit your family is. If a lot of them are narcissistic or have behavioral pathologies, just notice it's a behavior pattern, not the person you're judging. So if they're not trustworthy, go out and find an advocate. Even call Brittany or I. We can set you up a safety plan. Both of us understand the risk that you are taking by leaving. So please don't stay one more day. If you have a way out and you just need someone to to show you that way, or if you don't have any idea how you're going to get out, either way and anywhere in between, please give us a call because we can assess where you're at by asking just a few specific questions and just do not confront the abuser. Yeah. Because you'll get more abuse and that's biblical. Yes. Yes, it is. Be beautiful and get more abuse. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Shannon brought up an important point. Boundaries don't have to be something that's verbalized to another person. They can be something internal as well. Because in a situation of abuse, you want to put safety first and especially if there has been physical abuse and you can aggravate someone, you want to be safety minded before anything else and confrontation, verbal confrontation face to face could put you and or others in danger, but you need to know internally that if certain lines are crossed, that you will extricate yourself from those situations because internally You can protect yourself that way. You do not need to tell the abuser. I saw a video recently by a relatively well-known creator online who actually is a narcissist. They call themselves a self-aware narcissist. But now they actually help people become aware of what it actually looks like. And they help people get out of narcissistic situations. So, you know, they're trying to shift their life for good. He would be the first to tell you, though, that just because a narcissist is in therapy doesn't mean they're going to be better or do better in any reasonable period of time and that you still shouldn't stay. So all of that said, he did a video recently where he specifically said safety first. And he even said just because it hasn't been physical before doesn't mean that it wouldn't escalate to that if you threaten to leave or whatever else. And he said it's okay to leave without ever telling them until you're gone. And actually that particular person's 
wife left them without telling them, took the kids, left them, got out and just didn't come back and sent him a message after the fact. And it's very common for them to say, you can't leave without talking like we should talk through this. No, you don't need to talk through anything with someone that's abusive. They've shown you in the past that they can't talk through things, that they continue to abuse, that when you do talk through things or get through things, it's either a Band-Aid for the moment that doesn't actually solve the issues or it can open you up to more abuse. So you do not have to ever tell an abuser that you're leaving. You can do everything you need to to leave. You can leave, get yourself and your kids, if you have them, to safety. Tell them after the fact or not. <laughs> leave a note behind, maybe, and never deal with them again, depending on what the situation is. I understand that some situations have legal involvement, and obviously, you know, there are some specific things that need to be handled or dealt with in those situations. But overall, you can get away and never look back. So I'm going to go through just a few more verses here. In 1 Corinthians 6.10, it says, Fraud, greed, drunkenness, verbal abuse, or extortion. These will not inherit God's kingdom realm. So here we specifically have it laid out as even verbal abuse is hated by God. People that are verbally abusive will not inherit the kingdom realm. In Exodus 3, God says to Moses, look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. Now go. For I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. So when God sees injustice, when God sees abuse, he makes a way out for his people. And actually, I'm going to read one more verse that's kind of related to that. And I feel like this is a good segue into divorce and what God actually says about it and what biblical divorce is. So in Genesis 31 and 42, Jacob is speaking and Jacob has been under Laban. He has been serving Laban for years to win over his daughters, but Laban has treated him unfairly. He has lied to him. He has changed things. He's basically been psychologically abusive and changed the game constantly. And Jacob is responding to Laban in this moment. And he says, in fact, if the God of my father had not been on my side, the God of Abraham and the fearsome God of Jacob, of God of Isaac, you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen your abuse and my hard work. That is why he appeared to you last night and rebuked you. So in this, we actually see God rebuked Laban for Jacob. But what we, you don't hear there is that Jacob left with both of his wives without telling Laban. They fled. Laban pursued him because he was going to tear him down and take his daughters back. And God rebuked Laban in that pursuit. So we see an example of how God steps in for his people there. And actually, I'm going to share two more, no, three more, and then we're going to go into this topic of divorce and what God says about that and why it exists. 
Ephesians 4.29, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. So God just blatantly says, don't use foul or abusive language. Again, that's verbal emotional abuse. Proverbs 22.24, don't befriend angry people or associate with hot-tempered people. So we're not even to associate with people that are hot-tempered or angry. So that tells you something about how we're to deal with abuse. So in Titus 3.10, it says, If people are causing divisions among you, give a first and second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with them. So causing divisions among you, that is a very common thing that abusive people do. They isolate their victims from other people. So they do cause divisions. In fact, they will go as far as to slander the people around their target, around the person that they are abusing, to the abuse victim, just to cause divisions. They will go out of their way to try to cause fights, to try to create chaos that is not there, and cause divisions between friends, between family members, between people, just to gain control. So I love that verse because it's so clear. Look, if someone's creating divisions, pay attention. Give them a warning. If they don't listen, get away. It's very clear. Very, very, very clear. So I also just want to touch on that we are talking about abuse, but abuse knows no color. It knows no social status and it knows no gender. Abuse victims can be rich. They can be any color or creed. And abuse victims can be men or women. Men get abused just as much as women. It's more frequently emotional and psychological abuse, which is reported less anyhow. And men don't report as frequently as women, but men do get abused also. And I just want to touch on that and just say there are things in the Bible that relate to that as well. It's not just about women. A lot of the verses are for both men and women. There are many verses that talk about treating your wife as Christ treated the church and Christ gave up his life for the church. You are supposed to treat them as an equal partner. In 1 Peter 3, 7, we see that. And I don't necessarily love everything about this, although it's the truth physically for the most part. But it says, 1 Peter 3, 7, in the same way you husbands must give honor to your wives, treat your wife with with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. Can you guess which part I don't love? It's the weaker part. But the reality is that God made us to take care of the home and function in that capacity. And men do usually have a larger and stronger build. So, But what God is saying here is very clear. Husbands are to honor their wives and treat them with understanding and as an equal partner in God's gift of new life. So we see that that is directed specifically at women. A lot of these verses are for both men and women because they can relate even to friendships. It doesn't necessarily have to be a domestic partnership. But then we also see in Proverbs in more than one place. I'm going to start with Proverbs 25, 24. 
It says it is better to live on the corner of a of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. So what God's speaking of is an abusive woman that's causing strife in the home. In Proverbs 21, 9 to 31, it reiterates this. It says it is better to live alone in the corner of an attic than with a quarrelsome wife in a lovely home. So again, we see this reiterated. What does this mean? This means God is intolerant of abuse, regardless of the sex, regardless of the race. We are not to be around abusive people. And God cares about men. He cares about women. He cares about everyone that this is affecting. And if we want to talk about child abuse specifically, in Mark 9, 42, it says, but if you cause one of these little ones who trusts me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone around your neck. So it's pretty clear what God says about abuse. One of the things that comes up in churches a lot or gets thrown around by abusers a lot is God hates divorce. And it's used as a way to try to keep people stuck in abusive situations. And we're going to talk more about this topic in part two of this, because we're going to do this episode in two parts, because there's just too much to say in one part. And we want to be able to hit everything in a way that you can actually take it in and not get overwhelmed by it. But I feel like this needs to be at least touched on because this is such a common thing that is said to people who are being abused and want to get out. Well, let me be clear. God does hate divorce. So do people. Do you know anyone who likes divorce? No. Divorce is miserable. God does not want divorce to have to exist. But here's what you need to understand. God created divorce because of hardness of hearts, because he recognized that abuse was going on in situations that he intended to be a beautiful covenant of trust and love and marriage between two people. And when he saw the abuse going on and he rebuked the people that were doing it and he recognized that they had hardened their hearts and they would not change. He created divorce to protect the people that were being abused. That is why divorce exists. And yes, that can look like adultery, but it can also just look like abuse, whether verbal or physical. Adultery is a form of abuse also. It's just one particular type. And in fact, God himself divorced Israel. God himself divorced Israel because Israel was compared to an adulterer. God himself divorced Israel. He did it because Israel had gone off the deep end as far as following false gods and being unfaithful to God. And he had given them chances to repent, and they did not. So he actually divorced them himself. This is in Jeremiah. So this verse where it talks about God divorcing Israel is in Jeremiah 3. And if you don't believe me and you want to find it for yourself, go check out Jeremiah 3. It's actually in Jeremiah 3.8, but I suggest you read that whole chapter to see what caused that. God does hate divorce. There wasn't ever supposed to be a need for divorce. God created us to live in the garden in perfect communion with him and in perfect communion with the partners that he had given us. But God also understands 
that people fell away, abuse started happening, hardness of heart started happening, and there became a need for it because of the fallen world. So I just want to put that out there because so many people have experienced spiritual abuse on top of the abuse that they had experienced at home because of this one issue. And you are not bound to stay married to or in a relationship with anyone who is abusing you. It doesn't matter if you are married and it doesn't matter if it's just a dating relationship or even if it's a family member. God makes it very clear that we are to get away from abuse and abusive people. Yes. Yes. So I want to just go over what the Bible says about how we're supposed to deal with it if someone sins against us, because it makes it clear that we are supposed to try to deal with it. We give people an opportunity to repent, but if they don't, we get away. Now, to be clear in this, If you are in an abusive situation that has gotten dangerous, emotionally, physically, whatever, you do not have to go to the person to deal with it. They have already proven that they do not want to change and they don't want to do anything differently. Safety first in every situation. But this is actually a really good way to recognize even earlier on if a situation can be mended or made healthy or not. It goes the same with boundaries. If you set a boundary and someone crosses it, that tells you a lot. So Matthew 18, it says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, Take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a a corrupt tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. So we are not to permit abuse, and we are not to permit continued sin. And there are situations where it is not safe to go through this process, but this is the kind of thing that early on you can do. And I wouldn't say in in a private relationship that you would necessarily go to the church. This is often specifically for the church body and what's going on in it. And you do not need a church's permission to leave an abusive partner. A lot of churches don't know how to deal with that, which will also be discussed on our next episode. But it does say, you know, if you go to this person, you bring up the issue. They do not confess it. They do not take responsibility. They do not repent. That tells you what you need to know. You are supposed to get away from that behavior. You do not deserve to be abused. You do not have to put up with it. Your health, your safety, your boundaries matter. And God says what we forbid here on earth is forbidden in heaven. We forbid abuse here on earth. We do not want to allow it. So I think we're just going to close out today's episode just going over some of the specifics about abuse and what that looks like played out, especially some of the psychological abuse things. Because as we said, you know, you know, if you're being hit, that's abuse, but there are some intricacies that go along with psychological abuse, some specifics that we're just going to touch on 
say a little bit about the cycle of abuse and close out. So do you want to start, Shannon? Yeah. So I just wanted to share some statistics from suffering in the heart of God. And it says that in the U.S., it is estimated that between one and three million women are physically assaulted by an intimate partner annually. Statistically, 25 percent of the women will experience at least one episode of violence from a husband or a partner. More than three women are murdered daily by their husbands or boyfriends. Pregnant women are more likely to be victims of homicide than to die of any other cause. It is the leading cause of injury in women ages 15 to 44. More than rape, mugging, car accidents combined. Statistically, it is far more dangerous for a woman to go home than to walk city streets alone at night. International statistics report women experiencing physical and sexual assault in their own homes. Okay, so that's why this is so serious and important to both of us. Now, those statistics are from women. And like Brittany said, we hear from men, too. Mm -hmm. We know that you are being abused, men, if you hear this. These are just statistics. So the men that are being abused hear that. There are women suffering the same things that you are. And men, women are, are suffering. Women, men are suffering. And so that's why we want to bring awareness to this topic. And yes. I want to just explain the differences between a few different types of abuses so that it makes sense. Um, Can I just add really fast, just a statistic about men as well, just to throw it in there and then you yeah. take, take it away. So statistically what they have found when they have interviewed people or when things have been reported is that one in three women and one in four men are abused or experience abuse in some capacity. Now that doesn't break it down into psychological or physical. What I can say is that psychological abuse is not reported as often, which means that actually the number on both sides is likely a lot larger Men are more likely to be psychologically abused, which might actually mean that is the difference in the numbers. Not that women aren't psychologically abused, but what I mean is that men are less likely to experience the physical violence just because of size difference, but they are just as likely to experience psychological abuse. The other aspect is that most men will not report. So I know that Shannon Thomas, who wrote the book, healing from hidden abuse says that in her practice, she sees the same number of men and women. It is 50, 50 right down the middle, but most of the people that come in don't even fully recognize that they have been abused when they come in because that's what psychological abuse can feel like. So what that means is the numbers are actually probably a lot more staggering than one in three. I would say it's at least one in three men and at least one in three women, but the numbers are likely larger than that simply because of the discrepancy that happens with psychological abuse and the confusion that can go with it. So go ahead. What else did you have to share, Shannon? Yeah. So physical abuse, I wanted to just define it separately. We defined abuse previously and now I want to break it down for us just a little bit. So physical abuse is pretty obvious. Like Brittany said, it's hitting, burning, pushing, biting, restraining, scratching, blocking, and beating with an object, using the body to threaten, such as slamming a fist or breaking something. It is using physical power to control, manipulate, or intimidate. Verbal abuse, name-calling, demeaning, humiliating, sneering. It is using words or using verbal power to control, manipulate, or intimidate. Emotional abuse, 
It is the systematic tearing down of another person by rejection, ignoring, terrorizing, isolating, or corrupting. It is the use of emotional power to control, manipulate, or intimidate, and financial abuse. This can include no access or knowledge of finances, doing dueling out meager amounts of money at will, or forcing a spouse to ask and using that to control them in other ways. It is the use of money and its associated power to isolate, control, and demean. Spiritual abuse. Many abusers use the scriptures and the principles that are in them to manipulate, demean, and control their spouses. Verses on submission are used to demand participation in sinful things, including group sex, strip clubs, justification of sexual assault. Spiritual abuse is the use of scripture and spiritual language and principles to control, humiliate, demean, and silence another person. So basically, domestic abuse is a pattern of assaulting, coercive behavior. We're going to get into that more next session Mm -hmm. and a pattern of obsessive controlling behaviors. And it often builds and becomes increasingly severe. Initially words are used to threaten and create fear and confusion. Then restricting, isolating and withholding behaviors are added. Physically acting out is another level, which is essentially doing damage to the things such as punching a hole in the wall and breaking things. Physical violence to the person is the next level. And finally weapons of some kind may be added to the abuse. You can understand how the fear and terror build in the home. So what Brittany and I are ultimately trying to do is inform, make aware, and demand that the protocols in the church change, that the church becomes what we're calling, lovingly calling a trauma-informed church, and that you hold abusers accountable, okay? It requires exposure. We can't shove it under the rug anymore. It requires uh, repentance, a changed behavior, and safety for the victims, and treatment. You don't just get better overnight from abuse. There is things that need to be set in place so the family and victims are safe. The perpetrator is safe from harming anybody else. And the church has a huge opportunity to be the hands and feet in this area because we see it every single day. We know when people are being abused and we feel like we can't do anything about it. We don't want to get involved. It's none of our business. Well, it is our business. We're the hands and feet of Jesus. This is our actual job. And this, all the drug addiction you're seeing in children are coming out of abusive homes where the wife was told to submit or the husband didn't tell on the wife or whatever the situation may be. They were stuck in this for 20 years. And now you expect them to come out and not need to numb or lose their self in sexual relationships and be, you know, fornicating. Like, no, this is what happens when we brush abuse under the rug in the church. And we want to be seeing something different. And I'll let Brittany talk about her book, but they can't stay in the pulpit. They can't shift ministries. They need consequences anymore. Okay. That is it. So um, I'll wait till the end to pray. Yeah, and I just want to define coercive control really fast. Oh, Lord Jesus. Coercive control refers to a pattern of controlling behaviors that create an unequal power dynamic in a relationship. These behaviors give the perpetrator power over their partner, making it difficult for them to leave. Another definition says coercive control is a pattern of controlling and manipulative behaviors within a relationship. So one of the things that this can look like is monitoring your communications with other people. 
getting involved in your social media, your email, what your phone, wanting to see your phone and see who you've talked to, they don't have to monitor it 24-7 for them to be monitoring it. If they're asking you to see it, if they are questioning who you've been talking to, where did you go today, who did you see, that is an example of coercive controlling behavior. People that are healthy don't use that as a way to control or attack. And it is patterns of manipulation. And they will usually use reasoning around love. They will say it's for love. It's to protect you. It's for this or that. But really, it is about gaining control. So those are just some of the behaviors to look for. Down here, it says monitoring activities like I just mentioned, exerting financial control, isolating the other people. So that's a big one of coercive control, isolating you from other people. And that doesn't always mean keeping you away from people entirely. Sometimes it means inserting themselves in with everyone else. So you don't have time alone with friends anymore. You don't have time alone with family anymore. They are always there. That is a part of isolation also. So these are a lot of the ways that that can happen. And just before we close out here in prayer, I want to say that, you know, abuse tends to start becoming more obvious once you're in it and have been for a while. You might not know that you're being abused, but you might start seeing toxic behaviors or you might realize that things are chaotic. When I was in the abusive situation that I was in before I got out, I knew that it had gotten toxic. I knew that it was unstable, that he needed to get help and healing, and that as long as he didn't, we were in a mess. I realize now that it would have taken a long time, even when he did, for things to really change. But I knew that it was toxic. I didn't realize I was being abused. I didn't realize I was being abused until I'd been out of it for a year and no contact for six months. Because after going no contact, my brain could finally start processing things on its own without constant manipulation. So it can be hard to recognize when you're in it. You might have recognized something's not right. This is toxic. This isn't what it was like in the beginning. Maybe you've gone through a couple breakups or, or a threat to breakup. You might have not even broken up completely, but there's that threat on the table when you get into a big fight or something goes on and it escalates, right? So you know that there are things that are going on that aren't good. When those big escalations or explosions happen, you might want to just label that abuse. But the reality is that abuse is a pattern of behaviors that go in a cycle together. And that's just the overt part. So the cycle of abuse does not start with direct abuse like that. It doesn't start with an explosion. It doesn't start with physical harm. It doesn't start with emotional, psychological harm or explosion. It actually starts with something called love bombing. And love bombing is an over-attentiveness, an almost obsessiveness, constantly giving you attention, affection, compliments, Mirroring can be included in this, which means they mirror you. They act like they like all of the same things that you do. They take on your persona, your personality, your likes and dislikes, whatever they can do to get you hooked into the relationship. Now, someone being attentive to you in a healthy way is different than love bombing. Someone can be consistent with you and show up for you 
and tell you they like you and they're excited to get to know you better. But when someone first meets you and they're already saying, wow, there's, we just have such, there's such an amazing connection. I think you might be my soulmate. I've never felt this way before. They're talking about serious things early on. They're expecting you to make a commitment to them very quickly. They want you to meet their family. They want to meet your family. They're inserting themselves in everything. They are calling you excessively or throughout the day, all day. They're showing up all the time. They don't ever want to be apart from you. They're constantly complimenting you and telling you that everything about you is perfect. These are signs of love bombing. That is not normal behavior. Even if you have just met your soulmate and you have an amazing immediate connection, healthy people know that you need time to truly get to know somebody and figure out if they are healthy and right for you. And a lot of abusive people will keep the mask on with love bombing as long as they possibly can to hook you in as much as they can. I've even heard of people that got married before the mask fully came off. They were love bombed all the way to the altar and Shannon's raising her hand saying it happened to her. They were love bombed all the way to the altar and it wasn't until the honeymoon or shortly thereafter that everything changed. I also have met men that have said they had no idea that their wife was abusive and then all of a sudden after the kids came, the wife started abusing them because she was using them to get to that point and get the kids. And once she had the kids and felt that she had control that way, the abuse behavior started coming out. So it's really important to recognize some of the upfront behaviors that happen before the explosive episodes. Love bombing is the most obvious to me that abuse is going on. Some of the other early signs can be jealousy. Now they might not, they won't explode with you necessarily, but they will be jealous. They will be extra curious about people that you're talking to. Doesn't even have to be the opposite sex. They want to be involved in everything. They don't like it when you spend time with other people. They want the time and attention to themselves, or they want to insert themselves in everything and with everyone. They will likely get jealous of you interacting with the opposite sex and might use excuses for you not to and even say things about the other people you're interacting with. Maybe you have a female friend if you're a guy or a guy friend if you're a girl and you are talking to them and they might make a comment, I know they want more with you and they're being inappropriate and you know they're just against our relationship. They might say things like that. They might say, it's clear to me they don't like me. They're just against our relationship. If you care about me, you wouldn't spend time with them. They find ways to isolate like that long before any explosive abuse situation happens. So notice those things. Pay attention to those things. In healthy relationships, it takes time to build and grow. You actually have to take time getting to know each other. So pay attention to that. You can also look at things like, do they have other people in their life that they're close to that have been in their lives long-term? What do those relationships look like? Are the people that are around them healthy people? This is not always a sign because a lot of abusive people can put on a really good show for the public. So they might be able to keep somewhat surface level relationships where those people just don't really know them. But 
a lot of the time, toxic people also have a lot of toxic friendships. So either they are surrounded by other toxic people or they don't have a lot of long-term relationships. There is also a tension building phase. So in the tension building phase, there won't be as overt abuse necessarily. You won't be exploded at or have that kind of thing going on, but you will have little digs here and there, maybe commentary that just stands out to you as odd. They might make jokes that aren't really funny. They might sort of put you down here or there, or they might get grumpy about things that they wouldn't have before. Now, I'm not saying that everybody doesn't have their moments of being grumpy because it's early in the morning, you know, and they don't want to deal with morning breath or something, but this goes kind of an extra step but it's little things to just belittle you slightly. They might not even come across as something obvious. Something that my ex said to me at one point was, it feels really good to have something that everyone else wants. And he was talking about me, but he called me a thing in that moment. Now that could have come across as a compliment, but actually it wasn't because I was being treated as a piece of property. Abusive people don't look at their targets or partners or whatnot as people. They look at them as property. So another thing that was said to me at one point was, I heard that you were a nerd in high school. And I was like, what? No, I wasn't. I wasn't a nerd in high school. I dated. I got asked to every dance, usually by upperclassmen. I had a ton of good friends. My One of my best friends in high school was the homecoming queen. Like I was friends with everybody. I was not a nerd in high school. And he's like, well, that's not what I heard. And he gloated about it. Like he felt good to know this. So that doesn't come across as direct abuse, but it's just this subtle little thing to tear you down a little bit. It might be sarcastic little jokes that they say. And they're like, oh, you know, I'm just kidding. But there's some element of truth to it. And they say them all the time to tear you down. So that would be an example of tension building. Then there is the explosive episode. And like I said, this can happen in different timeframes. It doesn't necessarily happen immediately. It doesn't happen in a month, you know, but there will be an explosive episode, whether it be verbal, emotional, or physical. And then usually right afterward, they will either blame you for it, Well, what happens right afterward is hoovering. If they have managed to explode enough to either break up with you or make you do that, or just cause a massive explosion that needs to have the rift mended, they will hoover you. Hoovering is what it sounds like. It's based on the term vacuum, right? They suck you back in. But they can do this in a number of ways. They can make you feel guilty for what they have done. They can blame you for it. If you hadn't done this, I wouldn't have exploded. They might apologize. Some abusers never apologize. Others do, but it's not genuine. The person who abused me did apologize. Apologized profusely, made a big, big deal about it. But it wasn't genuine because the change behavior didn't happen. There was no change to go along with the apology. Maybe temporarily it would go back to either a tension building phase or back to love bombing for a period of time, but there wasn't any actual healthy change made. And they will hoover you in, and then the cycle starts over again, usually. Sometimes they don't go back to love bombing, but a lot of abusers go right back to love bombing just to make sure that you're getting plenty of hits of dopamine so you are 
totally addicted to what they are doing to you. Because that is the challenge with abuse. It's actually an addictive cycle. It creates so many chemical responses in your brain and in your body that it is an addiction. And I've heard people say that it is actually more addictive than heroin or just as addictive as heroin abusive situations. So just know when you do decide to come out of abuse and you do that, you will go through withdrawals and you will probably experience feelings of missing them and whatever else. But that does not mean that you are wrong. And it does not mean that you should go back. It means that you are withdrawing from the addiction to the abuse that happens in chemical responses in the body. So Shannon, I know you want to pray, but Do you want to add anything to that and then close us out in prayer? Yes, it is not your fault. You were targeted and manipulated. If this is where you find yourself in this type of situation, there is no condemnation in Christ. You did not do this. You did not cause this. And so hear us when we say that it is a chemical reaction in the body that comes from emotional and psychological abuse. And yes, physical, we know those types of trauma, but we really want to get into the nitty gritty of being treated poorly is abuse because it's not just a one-time thing. It's a repeated pattern. And that's the difference between disrespect and abuse. Yep. And you don't deserve to be consistently disregarded. Yep. So it is a natural response, a chemical response in your body when you're going up and down and high and low and high and low all the time. It's not your fault. But what you can do is create a safety plan. You can get off that harmful hamster wheel. You can make a choice every day to emotionally detach from this human being that is hurting you or human beings, if it's a family or a friend or a job situation or a spiritual leader. And that's the hardest. That's where we know spiritual abuse is a double whammy. These are people you're supposed to be able to trust. So when your pastor tells you to stay with your abuser, it makes it really hard to see God through a clear lens anymore. So when you step off the hamster wheel and you get away from that situation, you'll be able to see God's hand in your situation. It just is hard and muddled when you're being abused every single day and told and gaslit, told lies and made to believe that your reality is okay and you just need to tolerate it more or surrender more or submit more. And that won't work in an abusive situation. That's not the dynamic that works for healing and for recovery. Yeah. Yeah. Abuse is not a relationship problem. Abuse is an abuse problem. It doesn't take two to tango in abuse. It takes one person being abusive. It takes one person being a predator. And I just want to add on to what Shannon said, because we haven't gone here, but a lot of people tell us that they're so embarrassed that they got involved and they don't understand how they didn't see it up front. Look, Shannon and I are both very prophetic people who hear from the Lord, and we both still ended up in abusive situations. But here's what I want to tell you. You didn't end up in abuse because you're a fool. You didn't end up in abuse because you're stupid. You didn't end up in abuse because you're dumb. You ended up in abuse because you are a good person who cares about people, who is compassionate and loving. As Shannon puts it, your superpower compassion, empathy was used against you. You ended up in that because you were taught societally that we are not supposed to look for the bad in people. We're supposed to look for the good. 
You never got into a situation looking for love, thinking that you would have to look for evil in somebody because we're not taught that someone who says I love you and showers you with attention and affection could actually have evil intentions. We're taught to look for the good. And love bombing, it's super intoxicating. It feels good. It's intoxicating. It's easy to get sucked into. And until you know better, you don't know better. But what I can tell you is that what was used against you in the past doesn't ever have to be used against you again, because now you do know better and you can learn to know even more and understand more fully what happened to you and even what dynamics in you and in your life allowed that to happen as long as it did. Because a lot of the time, once we're in it, there are things that keep us stuck for a while. And a lot of it is addiction. Some of it is things that have happened to us in the past, though, that made it feel more normal. You know, some of us have experienced abuse or neglect in our pasts. And It felt more normal to be in it. We didn't recognize it necessarily as easily as someone who had not experienced that. So this is an opportunity to see some of those areas and see where healing can happen on a deeper level even than just healing from the abuse that you just went through. You will not ever be the same exact person that you were before you went into abuse. But you can and will be better long term because you're forced to heal Not just what happened to you in that trauma, but the things that might have even enabled you to stay as long. Healing trauma isn't just healing that immediate trauma. You end up unpeeling layers of trauma from your past. And I can tell you that I have more peace in my life now than I ever had before I went through the abuse. Healing was not easy. It was one of the hardest things that I have ever done. I often say, actually, that losing myself in abuse was one of the easiest things I've ever done. Felt really good at first, and then it just felt easy to shut down because I didn't know how to deal with it. Healing was one of the hardest things I've ever done, but it was the best thing that I've ever done for myself, and it is worth it, and you are worth it, and it is not your fault, and there are people that will love you completely, and there is so much more for you in this world than the abuse that you have been going through. And that person that is abusing you is not your person. That person that is causing chaos in your life is not your person. That person that you end up in big blow up fights with occasionally that escalate and sometimes even end up in breakups temporarily, that is not your person. Your person will make you feel safe. They will understand you. They will be safe for you to share your feelings, your wants, your needs with, and they will make space for you to show up for you in the ways that you need those things because they genuinely care. The person that is your person will not make you feel like you have to walk on eggshells because talking to another human being of the opposite sex or even of the same sex will set them off. Your person will make you feel safe. Even if other people are acting crazy around you and being totally inappropriate, your person will not attack you for someone else's behavior. They will be the person that you feel safe going to. So just know, no matter what they have said or convinced you of, and even sometimes no matter what we've convinced ourselves of, because it's, it's easy to try to buy the lie that we have listened to. Because when you get in really deep to something, I know for me, I wanted to believe that I hadn't wasted that time 
that I hadn't wasted that effort and that investment and even that intimacy on that person. But the reality is I was just keeping myself bound in something that I deserved a lot better than. And God had so much more for me. And that time wasn't wasted because God doesn't let us waste anything. That time was used for me to learn and grow and understand things. And now I get to help other people. But we have to stop wasting our own time and be honest with ourselves and tell ourselves the truth. Because other people can gaslight us, meaning they change our reality. They deny our reality. They tell us things that we did not believe before until we start questioning. But we can also gaslight ourselves. We can lie to ourselves. So we have to learn to tell ourselves the truth. So tell yourself the truth. You deserve better than abuse. There is someone out there that truly is meant for you that will never abuse you, that will not treat you that way, that you will not have to walk on eggshells with. And God has so much more for your life and you are worth it. And the process of healing is worth it for you. So I just wanted to add that in. Do you want to pray us out or do you have anything else to add? Yeah, no, this is beautiful. We will touch on quite a few things on the next episode, like divorce and the responsibility of leaders and exactly what coercion and gaslighting means. And, you know, talking about pathological behaviors and the chameleons, that's what I'm calling them. Someone else called them actors. Just people that are not really who they say they are. We're going to get into this because it's important that we don't feel like we are judging them as Christians, but we are separating ourselves from the behavior. So, but yes, I do uh, would love to pray for us. I would love to pray. And right before we pray, I just want to add on that if you have experienced any of this, you're wanting to heal, you're needing some guidance and help. Shannon mentioned this earlier, but we are both available to do that. Shannon does coaching. She goes live certain nights a week. I don't know if your 90 day relaxation stuff is still going on right now, but she goes live and teaches you how to get into relax mode. She does private coaching. She also has some books I have a book called Learning to Believe Again, 30 Days to Finding Hope, Faith, and Comfort in God's Truth. And while this is not specifically about abuse, I did write it from the perspective of someone who was healing from PTSD from abuse. So there is a lot of stuff in there that relates specifically to abuse. And along with that book, I just put together a book study that is available through my website, brittanybexton.com. You can jump on that study. It has seven weeks worth of videos that I've done to dig deeper into the topics that are in the book and to share some personal stories. It also has a workbook where you can go through questions and just dive deeper in your own healing process to really figure out some of the things that have affected you and unpeel the layers of that. And it gives you access to a Facebook group where you can ask me questions directly and you can also talk to other people going through the book. So I just want to let you guys know that those things are available. And now I'm going to let Shannon pray us out. Yes. Thank you, Brittany. My 90 day journey to health goes January through March every year, and it's completely free to the public. My hope is that teachers, pastors, leaders would pick up the concept of it. It takes 15 minutes a day. You can integrate it into the classroom. I have a trauma informed classroom as well. That is for educators, leaders, pastors, anybody that is leading a group of people that that care about their mental health and mental well-being because it's a simple tool. 
And so check out the free class through March. It's Monday through Friday, every night live at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Facebook under A Trauma Informed Way. And you can also have me come into your school or business or just conference and speak about the value of mental health care in our everyday life as part of our routine and discipline in our work days and in our class and our education, wherever we're at. So yeah, thank you, Brittany, for saying that. I wouldn't even have thought of to mention that. But yeah, thank you for having me too on the podcast. Okay, mm -hmm. so Father, we come to you now and we just ask that you start hearts on fire for your revival, for your purification, for your holiness in your church again, that it would be a safe place for victims, for survivors, for overcomers to find healing and true recovery. Yes. God, you call us to take the kingdom by force. And part of that is declaring out the truth. And we just ask you, Holy Spirit, to reform your church. We ask you to reform the ways and the systems of this world that are causing justice to stay hidden, to not come forth, God. And we just ask that you bring forth justice in the church. We thank you that you plead the cause of the afflicted and the needy, that you care about the poor, that you are a stronghold for the oppressed. You are a stronghold in times of trouble. You do not forget the cry of the afflicted. God, we are groaning now. We are asking you and crying out. And you said, you you said, it says, says the Lord, I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Protect them from those who verbally abuse them. Psalms 12, 5 in the ESV. He's, it says, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in a, the safety for which he longs. Protect them from those who verbally abuse them. God, we just speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. We're asking for the rights of all those who are destitute. We are asking for the, the judge to be fair and to defend the rights of the poor and the needy, Lord, that you would set the captives free from abuse right now in your precious name, Yeshua, and that you would cause people to open their homes and their hearts, Lord, that people wouldn't be afraid to help abuse victims, that they would open their homes and protect them like they would protect their own children, God. Yes. Father, inspire the leaders to shift everything within their power to protect victims to teach and educate and become a trauma-informed church. The trauma-informed church come forth. Oh, Jesus, I just thank you. I thank you. I thank you for this pathway and for healing and for this journey, God. And I just ask that you are seen in everything we say or do, that we, be, we bring glory to your name with yes. our podcast and our TikTok and our books, God, that you would have us write and speak in all of us, even those listening right now about the truth of your testimony, because that's how we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, which is you, Jesus, you, your testimony is the spirit of prophecy. And I just ask that you release it yes. over yes, Brittany and I, and all who hear this, that they would be touched by your word and that they would hear your voice and follow your voice in yes, the precious name of Jesus. I ask all these things. Yes, Lord. In Jesus mighty name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Listeners. We will see you for part two. Well, we won't see you, I guess, but 
We will speak to you for part two in a couple weeks here. So keep your eyes peeled where we go into the topics of divorce and what it means in the church and the responsibility of leaders where it comes to abuse. So have a blessed week. We love you and I'll talk to you next week. Bye. Oh